0: I've learned the hard way that I don't expect a sorry per se. It's actually quite black and white for me. I get the acknowledgement of my feelings. I get the acknowledgement of me being a value in terms of our relationship being a value or I walk. I'm done. Like I don't even wait for you. I'm like, am I gonna get it? I'm like, I'm done. Like I, I literally cut people off. That's what I do.
1: Because of the way we've been socialised, we often feel it's rude to formally recognise others' differences. We can sometimes see a level of uncomfortableness and phrases like, I don't see colour, or I don't see disability, we're all the same, are thrown around. But what are the real-life implications of these statements? We're missing a whole lot of intersectionality here. The Oxford Dictionary describes intersectionality as the interconnected nature of social categorisations, such as race, class and gender regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. It's effectively a framework to take into account people's overlapping identities and experiences in order to understand the complexity of prejudices that they face in our societies. For example, someone who identifies as female may face discrimination, as might somebody who's disabled. So a disabled female is facing a double discrimination. In our current world, weight or height may be included on this list too. Robin D'Angelo says, For most of our history, straight white men have been involved in a witness protection programme that guards their identities and absolves them of their crimes whilst offering them a future free of past encumbrances and sins. When did these characteristics and identities become more desirable? And what does that mean for the rest of us? Recognising difference and the language around intersectionality is something many of us can do better at. Melanie Eusebi is our guest today. She's an award-winning business strategist. She's worked as a management consultant in a big four firm. In 2014, she launched the Black British Business Awards, the largest awards program of its kind. She's also been the executive producer for the Women of the World Festival, a global gender equality festival with over two million women in 50 cities over five continents. Melanie now has her own consultancy business, and features in the list of 200 women influencers in the creative industry, 100 black leaders in media, and 50 top women speakers in the UK. Melanie, welcome. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for chatting to us today. Now, we're products of our culture. How far does mainstream culture and society provide the information and tools we need and prepare us for these conversations around intersectionality?
0: I don't think that we are prepared at all for conversations around intersectionality. The conversations that we've had thus far are almost about um, a double whammies. So if you are seen to be disadvantaged because you are a woman or because you're an ethnic minority, then together, that means you have a double disadvantage. The, the, the thing is, is that philosophically, as well as academically, intersectionality has moved on from those archaic views so me as a black woman that means that I you know I sometimes I see the lens with my yellow lens which is my woman's lens and sometimes I see it with a blue lens which is my black lens and then together it means that I see it through a green lens and so it's not necessarily that and that's what that's the beauty of intersectionality it's not necessarily about just kind of piling disadvantage after disadvantage over one another. It's about the way that they combined um, to make beautiful difference. And, 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 and what we have to do is think of a language that's definitely more inclusive, but also think of how we um, those archaic kind of principles, those archaic views are actually limiting the potential of most of the people in our cities.
1: I love what you say there about beautiful difference and it. When you talk about the coloured lens, it gives me this image of a kaleidoscope in my mind of all these different kind of ways we can frame and see the world. And I'd love to touch on that. But I first of all want to talk about this idea of denying our bias, because I think that's kind of what we need to get out of the way first. And if we do deny that we have any bias, i.e. the idea that, you know, I was taught to treat everybody the same and I do... I wonder if that absolves us of the need to explore and examine it. And the biases that we do all indeed have within us aren't looked at. How far do you think 2020 is changing the way that we're thinking?
0: I think that 2020 has done so much to open up the conversations, um, to open up the space, to have difficult conversations. Most people do not understand or examine their own biases even me being a diversity advocate for you know almost 30 years now i know that i have my biases and that's not to say there are two parts of a bias there's the bias that you have and there's also the action that you take on the bias particularly as you acknowledge your own power in in your world and so i i do think that we are moving to a better place where more and more people are acknowledging their biases and acknowledging the inherent privilege that privileges that we all have different ones from each other but we all have a certain amount of privilege and we are now examining how that privilege manifests because privilege really is the it's the manifestation of insider outsider, kind of philosophy so that means that you know for me to have privilege that means that someone cannot have the privilege it's the very nature of privilege that everyone cannot have it it's 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 very definition of it and so in acknowledging that I have privilege that means I also have to acknowledge the flip side of it which means that someone else doesn't have the privilege whether that be because of the neighborhood I live in because of the Um, clothes that I wear, because of the color of my skin, because of my gender, because of where I work, because of my city, because of my country, because of my hemisphere, we all have privileges. And I think that this 2020 has been a year where more and more people are acknowledging that we have privilege. And that means that we may have a bias towards our circles and the things that we are used to, the people that we are used to.
1: I wonder when we talk about privilege and our power and how we move around the world, I wonder if we have our different lenses, so for example our yellow lens or our green lens or our blue lens for different occasions, how often would you say we're able to pick and choose which one of those frames we're seeing the world through?
0: I don't think that we're necessarily able to pick and choose um, unless we, we've had some deep kind of self-examination as well as societal and cultural examination as well so that we can see how that privilege and bias and those lenses show up in our lives and and most of us don't have that. We Literally, we are all as busy as we ever have been. We have full lives. Things are popping at us at every left, right, and center. And so to have the privilege of even being able to step back and look and say, okay, well, because I have this, that means someone else doesn't have this. Um, not many of us have taken the time to do that. And, and certainly we can't be doing it on a regular or an ongoing basis. So... <laughs> It is a really, really tough one, Um, but most of the time, um, how I remind myself is that I've made so many mistakes on this diversity and inclusion journey. Mistakes that maybe people would have been surprised that I would be making it. I don't know everything. I don't know everyone. I don't know what to say sometimes. However, that's where the beautiful concept of grace does come in that the grace that we have to give ourselves and the grace that we have to give to each other as well, and that we have to. The, the reality is the the story and the narrative that is coming from someone's mouth, rather than it being well. No, I see it this way, therefore it has to be this way. So we are moving to that place. So where we are in listening mode, just a little bit more.
1: It's very interesting what you say about it's a privilege to be able to stand back and kind of examine this, and I think. This year has been an occasion where many people have had to do that, thankfully. But sometimes there can be a fragility or a defensiveness when it comes to this. And I think about things like pro-women shortlists or special interview allowances for disabled people or schemes that specifically look to recruit and hire young Black and Asian people. Yet myself and many others would say, well, we live in a progressive forward-thinking space. But then why is there so much pushback?
0: I think that there's so much pushback because um, people are, they have their lenses on. And so when you live in that space of liberal, you live in the space of labor, you live in the space of maybe left thinking, then, you know, that's essentially why the Brexit vote was such a shock to us. Or that why the voting of Trump as president was such a shock to so many because there was literally a, a non-acknowledgement of the, the other side, of the other. It was more so, well, of course you're not going to vote for him. Of course you're not going to vote for him. I remember the day that, the day of the first Women's March in London, I was at a Women in Business uh, conference being given in Pall Mall. And so it was about 500 women walking through the door. So I knew that the Women's March was happening that day because I was executive producer of WOW at the time, the Women of the World Festival However, when I looked around the room, and, you know, Paul Mall was on the March route. So all of those women, when I asked them, I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to the Women's March. None of them were going. None of them. Yeah, none of them. And it could be because of their political leanings, could it be because of their, you know, their socioeconomic leanings. I, of course, did not have the chance to talk to 500 women and ask them. However, we can't assume that feminism in its, under its current guise represents all. And I think that that's what we have done, where we have surrounded ourselves with people that believe the same things as us, that look like us, that do the same things as us in their spare time, and then we, we, we make an extrapolation out to the wider world. And that's why some of the results of our, our referendums and our votes in the last few years across the planet has been, uh, has been such a shock, has been such a surprise.
1: I often wonder if that ignorance is more damaging, the idea I look at you know myself and females around me and go, hey, we're all on the same page, this is excellent, rather than somebody who's overtly sexist, I can see you know, where they fall down and where the blind spots are in there, break those arguments, but exactly. when it comes to myself, I'm unable to see those blind spots because I go, well, I look around and... It looks it looks kosher to
0: me yeah no it does it's amazing isn't it that because we surround ourselves with people and things that we believe in and that uh, that look like us and that we because that's that and and we have to because there's so much information going on in the world right now our social media channels are curated for us our internet um uh, Channels are also curated for us. The results that we're getting are curated for us because there's so much out there that we actually couldn't process all the information that is out there. So it's curated.
1: Melanie, I really want to get your DNI hat on and look at our kind of professional and working lives because when it comes to our workspaces, I find often employers will provide perhaps one or two courses, whether a speaker or a self-learning tool on a topic like unconscious bias. There'll be a little quiz at the end. We all know the appropriate answers to pick and then it's never really addressed again. And we continue to hire people and put them at the top of chains who aren't perhaps investing in learning about other people's worldviews or experiences. How can we make people directors and CEOs if they're not actively broadening their view and looking at the staff that they're hiring? It just seems kind of crazy.
0: It does. It seems very crazy. We know with adult learning, and even with children and learning, with learning principles in general, it's never just about learning the concept. It's also about applying the concept over and over and over again in similar scenarios. So the idea of when people keep on asking me, Mel, can you give a session on unconscious bias? Or Mel, can you give a session on microaggressions? And I could, but one session will not be effective, particularly with the way that we as human beings learn, the way that our brains absorb and apply information that we have learned we have to not just read about it and hear it we actually have to apply the learning to a scenario and that means that we have to apply it to our hiring scenarios we have to apply it to our performance management our promotion cycles as well and there has to be um, a a level that we are trying to attain there there has to be a standard that is set a metric that is set so that we know what good looks like. And if we apply those adult learning principles to unconscious biases and, and how they show up in the workplace in regards to our hiring and our performance management, that means that there does need to be someone accountable in the organization that is holding everyone else accountable to the d standards that they are aiming for. Most organizations right now do not have that, um, either do not have that person in place or the person that they have in place does not have enough, dare I say it, teeth in order to really enforce that this is what needs to be done. We are not the experts at this in the UK. Um, I would even say that I wouldn't even look too much to the U.S., I would say that you'd want to look at a country like South Africa, where it's legally required, that diversity and inclusion to a level, you know, in terms of changing the uh, the legacy of of apartheid. That's where you would want to, that's where you should be examining in terms of best practice. How do you change like that? <laughs> but rather, we, we seem to think that we don't have a problem. Or if we do have a problem, we, we acknowledge it, but then we're not actually affecting real change. And it's frustrating for all. It's frustrating for the underrepresented minorities. And it's also frustrating for people who are like, wait, why are we harping on about this still? We've been talking about this forever and it's still not changing. So there's a whole lot of frustration out there.
1: I mean, you've worked in the business world for many, many years. And the research has been telling us for decades that diversity of thought is one of the most successful ways for your business to Be good, make money, and kind of get people involved. Yet, as you say, many places don't have the teeth or the willpower to do that. Why are we willfully ignoring the science? It just—it just
0: boggles the mind. It does boggle the mind, but there are also, again, we have to look at the structures and the processes. If we look at leadership, for example, if you look at your typical board role. Typical board roles, a lot of them, you don't even have to step down. There's not even a cyclical kind of element to them. Um, And then the ones that are cyclical, you know, they could be four years, it's eight years. And so quite frankly, a changing of the guard will take time. Then we also have a a problem around nomenclature, right? We'd actually, there are some people who don't want to be called Black. Some people don't feel comfortable with that term. And um, so, or there are some people when we talk about diversity of thought, then, you know, there are some that say, wait a minute, diversity of thought, we can barely get diversity on an indicator that we can see with our eyes. How are we going to have diversity of thought where you can't, you know, we can't possibly examine people's heads and minds. So if we can't even do the thing that's visible, how are we going to do it with what the the invisible? So there has been a lot of um, nomenclature and philosophy and uh, theory that's been purported over the last few years. But unfortunately, none of them have been able to stick in terms of um, really shifting the dial in an impactful way for our organizations. Also, there has been a heavy reliance on, I think, the passion and the purpose of the freedom fighters. So I think that with gender, uh, with race, you see it with social mobility. In terms of the work, The work hasn't been valued and it's, it's expected to be done for free. It's expected that we do it out of the the passion of our hearts and the bottom of our hearts, because we want to see equality. And that's a problem in the sense of, because it's not valued, then that means that there's no metrics, there are no investments. So how do we expect real change? A few years ago, financial legislation was introduced to prevent money laundering. And I remember that we had a very clear deadline and you either met it or you didn't. (laughs) And quite frankly, as a consultant, that was one of my busiest years. I was being carted around for anti-money laundering, you know, helping banks get to where they needed to be by the time the deadline was set. Same thing with, you know, 5P bags that I remember when we started, you know, before. Oh, the shopping bags. Exactly. I remember there was a time when we didn't pay for shopping bags. The government's like, well, you know what, now you are. And we made it happen. We implemented the processes and we did it. And so I do, um, I know that a lot of people don't think that um, kind of quotas or targets are a good thing, that we should kind of uh, ease society on, you know, in their own way, on their own time to get to that destination. However, every time someone says that to me, I, you know, I, I think of, I remember I was speaking to a room of like 10 year olds, about 700 10 year old women. And we were talking about dreamscaping and they were telling me about their dreams and what they wanted to do. And if you've ever had to look 700 young girls in the eye and tell them, quite frankly, because of your and they were black, young black girls. For me to tell them that, quite frankly, you may have all these dreams, but by virtue of your race and by virtue of your gender, you are going to make 40 percent of the men who are the white men who are beside you, the white little boys. Oh, God. And And you tell them that with their dreams and then you see what happens to that. Like have you ever, and so I'm not telling those girls to wait until we figure it out, but we know it's unfair, but we'll figure it out that's that's horrific to me that at least I'm fighting for her, that she doesn't have to do the same thing that we do, but that is what we're saying to young girls as well. We're saying, hey, you make eighty, you know what I know I know that you want to be." a football team manager but you're going to make 80% and actually you may not even be able to get it because that those positions aren't necessarily open for you right now. Tell a 10-year-old girl that and then see, you know, and then tell me afterwards to wait, to wait for that, to wait for us to figure it out equality. That's terrible. Shocking.
1: It's so true what you say that you know, people with this noble goal of equality are actually ironically working for free for something that isn't valued and you know As you say, telling 10 year old girls that actually, yeah, that's not a space for you is not a position that we want to be in ever. And I was really curious about your point that you said perhaps some people didn't want to identify or did want to identify in particular ways. And I think language is something that in the professional and personal space, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of anxiety about. And often, we use kind of a, a group categorization, which some can, people can see as helpful, and others can say, "Well, that's not representative of the people that we put in those groups." For example, um, BIPOC, BAME, or person of color—basically, all terms meaning non-white. What do you make of those labels? How, how are they? How are they, in your opinion?
0: In my opinion, I think number one that the, the people should decide on the nomenclature, right? So, the people that we're identifying. So, for example. Someone came up with the term BAME. And I remember speaking to my counterparts, so from the Asian Achievement Awards, and, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a group of us all together who are running kind of awards programs, recognition programs. And no one liked the term BAME. You know, the Black people didn't necessarily like it the Asian people didn't like it and there were no minority ethnic because we actually haven't really figured out who those are yet
1: yeah just sort of everyone one side
0: (laughs) yeah so I think you know and I I say that sorry slightly facetiously but I I guess first things first I'm not you know I can't no one can tell me that my name is or is not Melanie except for the people who chose my, my mom and my dad you know and hmm. for for first let's let people you know choose their name. <laughs> it's okay and number two, you know there is such discomfort around kind of referring to people as black or referring to people as white and and if I I, I question myself whenever I have to use someone's race as a descriptor or their gender then I, I I'm wondering why I have to use it if that makes sense. Hmm. Like, there is never usually, like, a lot... Be- I do diversity work, so yes, of course, in those instances. But if you're not in diversity and advocacy, then why do you have to use it? <laughs> That's a really interesting
1: point. And I wonder
0: for... Obviously, I'm a
1: straight, white, sort of middle-class, able-bodied woman, um, and I never really... This sounds ridiculous. I never really saw myself as white because I never had to think about it, which is obviously an exceptional level of privilege. And it wasn't until this year that I had to think about what does being white mean to me. Because in my head, it's associated with something a bit EDL, sort of bulldogs and British flags and Brexit and all these things that I'm like, oh, I'm not really sure I'm cool with that. But actually, I'm very much in that category. So it was just framing like who I am and who how I fit within it. And I just wonder whether, like, it just seems so unfair that everybody that isn't in that category of white just gets shoved into a couple of letters and we go, well, you may be from Pakistan or you may be from the Caribbean, but either way, there you go. You, you know, it's kind of the same.
0: Yes, it, it's it, It's <laughs> it, I, whenever I have to describe someone with their race or their nationality, then I better be doing diversity work. I better be, the only reason why I should be doing it. And, I, you know, and of course, because I work in this space, I I, I try to hold myself to a really high standard. But the only reason why I should be speaking about women or Black people or Asian people or, you know, disabled people, it's because I need to make sure that I have an invite for them at my table. That's the only reason why. Every other reason usually means that you're messing up. (laughs) This <laughs> usually means that you're going to be leaning towards that place of inappropriateness or mis- you know, or microaggression.
1: That's really interesting. I wonder in British culture whether we're at two ends of the spectrum. So one in being like everything's fine and I don't see color or disability or gender and everything's great. To the other side of defining people very much and quite. Um, siloed categories. What would you say to that?
0: I would say that I have learned the hard way with our beautiful country that I cannot define, (laughs) you know, I do not know what side of the spectrum we are on. Um, We could be both, it could be (laughs) 50-50. We have to hold a referendum and we'll see. There's a surprise vote. Yes, there might be some people who are saying I don't see colour. I personally don't like when people say that and I encourage them not to say that they don't see color, but that's because, but then, you know, again, I have to give people grace. I know when, when people feel the need to say, I don't see color, their intent is, look, it doesn't matter what color you are. I love you for what's inside. And, and, and and that intent is, is honorable. Um, For me, my color, uh, you know, telling the black British business awards, uh, chair and co-founder, that she does, you know, that you don't see her color, you, you're really not seeing a really big part of me. <laughs> you know, like you're not seeing like I am a black woman, like uh, you know I, and so, but I get, so I guess where's the I have to give grace. I get their intent, but I would encourage anyone, like please do not do not say that because uh, there is a, a there's a there's a culture, language, food, music history that when you say you don't see it then it almost feels like you're not seeing part of the person because it actually is a very it's an important part of me and I identify as such.
1: I think that's really interesting that you say you know not seeing is kind of being blind to part of who you are and I wonder whether so speaking about the UK I think we've got a lot better at talking about gender much more openly when it comes to queer members of our community I think we're much more open at having conversations when it comes to trans and non-binary people there's a level of conversation we can have when it comes to disabled people there's some conversation we can have but still race seems such a taboo subject kind of regardless of age range do you think I mean is that just me being sensitive do you think that Britain is still kind of locked down with going, well, that's a conversation that's not for me. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to not speak about it. Whereas gender, we're much more like, oh yeah, I can have a conversation and share my views.
0: No, I'm sorry. I <laughs> I think that there are many pockets of the world, of, of our country that are not speaking about it and don't want to speak about it and are uncomfortable. And so I do I think that we're moving more towards it? Perhaps, but it's certainly... I would say there's still a long way to go in terms of being able to speak comfortably about race. We're not there.
1: I guess our homework is uh, getting comfortable with feeling uncomfortable.
0: That's two sides of the story as well, right? So it's not necessarily getting comfortable. It's getting comfortable with e- being able to hear there are you know people who do not agree with my platform at all, right? There are people who are just like, and I have to be, I have to get comfortable hearing that as well. There are two... It's not just about being comfortable kind of talking about race in this nice way so that we can all solve towards this kaleidoscope kind of utopia. No, it's about getting comfortable having a difference of opinion. And on top of that, understanding that a difference of opinion and what that means. Because for me, when someone differs um, and and does not agree with the Black British Business Awards, then it, 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 it hits the identity. It doesn't just... It's not just this kind of kind of textbook concept and theory for us to discuss, like, you know, left in, leftism and rightism in politics. It's actually equality and identity. And that is always going to be inflammatory for both sides. And so are we ready to have those kinds of conversations yet? I argue that not many organizations, not many, pla- not many countries in this planet are ready to have that kind of conversation. The fact of the matter is that in almost every country in the planet, where whether or not black is the majority or the minority, but where there is difference according to skin color for groups, blacks are subjugated. So I can start in Sri Lanka. I can go down to Australia. I can come back up to the Middle East and China and India. I can go across to our EMEA, our beautiful UK, I can go across to Canada, the US, and I can go down into South America and the Caribbean. And it's the same thing that the darkest skinned people usually are also less economically well off, less socially well off. And so what does that say? That's the reality. And I don't think that as a planet we understand That, as Black people, as well as any other race, I don't think we understand what we do to people according to the darkness of their skin tone. And it's a shame. And I've worked in them all. That's the thing. I've worked in Brazil, Argentina, Canada, whether it be the Indigenous people of Melbourne, of Australia, whether it be the staff that are flown from Sri Lanka to Qatar, to Doha to work for the families there.
1: I will get onto your stories in a second, I promise, Melanie, but why do you think our consciousness hasn't changed? You've just said that all around the world, people with darker skin are going to be less well off, perhaps exploited more. Why hasn't our consciousness changed?
0: I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. That's a really tough question. But it, the 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 trend cannot be ignored. The socioeconomic trends the demographic trends cannot be ignored. Additionally, another trend that cannot be ignored is that there are are parts of the world that are having more babies than others. And so whether you like it or not, the globe is changing and the balance of power is changing. And so particularly for organizations, the demographics for your hiring practice, in order for you to be innovative, you really should change as well. So that you're able to access the best of the talent pool, the talent pipeline. Because if you are, it, 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 it's really shocking. If you, I think there's something about the world that's become increasingly global, but then there's also been increasingly nationalistic as well. You know, with the UK and boards, you know, there are not enough black people on boards and not enough Asian people on boards. But then you're like, well, that happens in Canada. That's also happens in the U.S., It also happens in the Caribbean. It also happens in Brazil. It also happens in Australia. So you're just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a global trend. Yeah. (laughs) What's up? What's going on? Yeah, exactly. There's a global trend. So, yes.
1: Oh, Melanie, this is so interesting. Um, Gosh, I think we could talk about this all day, but I'm going to drag us away and bring us to your stories that you very kindly agreed to share with us. Now, what would you
0: like to share for a sorry that you waited for, but one that never came? You know what? This is actually, the story that I waited for It never came was never. I don't expect apologies at all. No way. I don't. I So I don't have, I don't sit and stew and wait for someone's sorry. And that was since I was a young child. And so when I was looking at this, I just thought like, There was such a deep accountability for my own actions and my own responsibility in any given situation that I will, I am quick to say, sorry, I am quick to acknowledge where my fault is. However, I, in regards to receiving an apology from someone, I don't wait for it. Um, And I, I, I do With some of the businesses that I do business with, when I say businesses, I'm talking about like consumer businesses, I expect an Mm acknowledgement. And if there's not an acknowledgement, then I leave. So for example, some of the large organizations have done some really crazy things uh, in terms of racially profiling people or, you know, I do look at their sorries and if their sorries are more the, I'm sorry that you feel this way, rather than I'm sorry this happened and here's my response. here's. My role in it, and here's what I pledge: so I don't do it again. Then I will shop with them again. But I've learned the hard way that I don't expect a sorry per se. It's it's actually quite black and white for me. It's I get the acknowledgement of my feelings. I get the acknowledgement of of um, me being a value in terms of our relationship being a value. Or I walk, I'm done. Like I don't even wait for I don't wait for you. I'm like. Am I going to get it? I'm like, I'm done. Like, I, I literally cut people off. That's what I do.
1: <laughs> I think this is changing my life right now because I cling to the hope of a sorry. You must be an expert at sort of self-healing and going, closing that chapter.
0: Exactly. Closing the wound. You know, I, but I acknowledge my role in it. That, that's, and that's hardcore because there are like, I with some people in my life, there are particular people I'm thinking of right now, they never say sorry. They never take feedback. And so our relationships are quite, it feels quite unbalanced because I'm, you know, if I do something wrong, then I I, like, I'm sorry, I did this or I made a mistake here. And they're not like that at all in terms of some of my work um, relationships. And so I don't wait for them. I actually, I just keep it. There's something that literally just closes off from them to say, you know what, they're just not, they're not my people.
1: This is, this is, this is hardcore. I like it. It is. Do you ever think about um, letting them know that the reason that perhaps you're not 100% on board with them is because they haven't apologized? Or are you like, no, you should, you know, you're a grown-up, you should know?
0: Oh, most definitely. Because that's all about the closure. So I do tell them that I've been hurt or that their behavior is upset with me. And then they have the opportunity to apologize and acknowledge or they... Or if they don't, then we just move on. But the relationship does change because I'm not going to be fooled twice. If, you're, if you've already shown me your backside the first time, why would I let you show me your backside the second time? Very true. But I do give people their stuff and I don't carry their stuff with me. That's what it was. It was that I wanted a lightness of being where I wasn't carrying your misdemeanor, your mistake on my spirit. So that I feel like I feel heavy because I'm carrying the, like the hope of an apology. It makes absolutely, you know, it just doesn't work. It
1: doesn't work. I think you've genuinely just changed my life. I'm going to sleep a lot better from now on.
0: Just, yeah, it's gonna, you got to leave <laughs> leave their stories behind. If they have the acknowledgement, don't, you know, And but when a sorry comes and I, it's a beautiful thing, I'm sorry. And when it's just a heartfelt, I'm sorry that it's lovely and you, you keep it moving. But if it doesn't come, the, you know, it may never come. And so what are you going to do? Hold out? Ruin your life?
1: I think some of that's the disappointment though in the person that you had thought perhaps they would act in a certain way and then they didn't and you're like no I know them they're gonna say sorry
0: I know them they're a good person they're gonna say sorry and then you're like hmm. but then why wouldn't you just talk to them wouldn't you just say hey you really hurt me here and you know there are sometimes when I hurt my friend like I've done something and I didn't know when she came to me she's like Mel you did this and I was like wow I am so sorry. I didn't know that it hurt you because you know what? We're in a contract together that she's my friend and hmm. friendship and, and, and a, a loving relationship is that I care about what matters to you. So even if I didn't think I did something wrong, I care about you and I, and I didn't, I, I don't want to hurt you by my actions. So I will say sorry that I hurt you and then let's try to heal and move on. But, and I, and I expect that with all of my friendships as well. And so I don't expect you to agree with me. But I expect you to care because you're my friend and you hurt my feelings. And if you can't do that, but I just acknowledge the fact that your actions hurt, you're not my friend. Like you're not, you know, you're just, not, you know, this, this may sound kind of crazy, but. So I was raised in the church, right? Like I was raised and I was in the pastor's office. And I remember my pastor when I was a kid, he just gave me for all the, the people who kind of are of the Christian faith, you'll know this well. He always said, you know, you can't just be looking for people to fulfill you all the time. You know, if you think about Jesus, there was three, you know, he had his three people. Like when he had to go and get crucified, he had the three people that he called. Like, think about who those three people are. Who are those people that you will pick you up when you are falling down? When you will encourage you to be the better person that you don't feel like being that day? Who are those three people? Those are your people, right? Then you have... You know, the disciples who are like, who's your crew? Who do you roll with? Who do you go out with? You go to dinner with them? You know, you really catch little jokes. But those are your disciples. And there's always going to be one Judas. There's always going to be one, one person that betrays you. But that's just the way of life. But you're, you're going to have people who believe in the same thing as you. And you're going to roll with them. Those are your disciples. Then you're going to have the people who you can't choose. That's like your mom, your boss. Those are like, like 20 There's like 20 of them around that, you know, like those are people that can impact your life, but you didn't choose them. But you got to, you know, make sure you keep an eye on the relationships and make sure the relationships are healthy because they do impact your life. And everyone else is the masses. And one day they're going to they love you. You're going to give them bread. You're going to give them wine. And the next day they're going to say crucify him. And that's literally how I've run my life. And so who do I expect sorries from? I expect them from the crew that I roll with. Everybody else. Well one day they love you one day they might crucify you you never know just gotta keep it moving Melanie this is unreal (laughs) I'm so sorry I used to be a Sunday school teacher that's why that's how I (laughs) what yes oh my goodness (laughs) wow okay I'm
1: for sure sleeping better and a boy that told me I was ugly at 16 I'm letting it go today I let it go almost 30 I'm letting it go (laughs)
0: let it go let it go let it go let it go and you know and it comes around, like, I was made fun of when I was a kid, and I remember I was um, filling up the gas tank at home, and one of those girls who made fun of me, she's like, oh my goodness, Mel, no, I saw you at basic, you're doing so well. And I just looked at her, I was like, you made fun of me hard, like, I had, like, therapy because of you, girl. Like, oh, damn. And you're going to come to me like you're my friend? So, you know, I didn't expect a sorry from her, but obviously, I was but hurt. Yeah. <laughs> And I was carrying it around. So, you know, you don't want to do that because we do operate out of pain. And it's when we operate out of pain, it's not a good thing, is it?
1: OK, so I feel like you're going to have a brilliant answer to this. What about a sorry that you should have given, but you didn't? A sorry
0: that I should have given, but I didn't? Mm-hmm. Again, you just heard this whole story. I just give the sorry. I know. I know. <laughs> it's like she's going to say none. <laughs> you know what? It's I'm not in, if I realize that I, if I know I will say Sorry. Because a sorry is nothing. It's just an acknowledgement. When I say it's nothing, it's not that it's not a value. It's an acknowledgement that what you've done has hurt someone else on the planet. And I, you have to realize, what are your deal breakers? The, the sorry is literally absolutely nothing. It's a, it's the giving of grace. And so why wouldn't you do it? There are, there are some times I will not apologize. Don't get me wrong. Like I will say, no, no, this is the hill that I'm going to die on today. I'm not apologizing for this. Like it's not, but... If it's someone that is a part of your, as we go back, part of your circle, part of your crew, part of your family, a relationship is important to you, and if someone's hurting and they're upset, then why wouldn't, I don't understand why, it just makes no sense. Why wouldn't you say, I made a mistake? However, I have to say, that also comes from the, having a growth mindset, and I, I foster it and I teach the class at the MBA school you need to have a growth mindset you need to get the fact that you are not you are a learning journey you are a work in progress and so for me to say sorry for a mistake that I made yesterday with the commitment that it's not going to happen again tomorrow that's having a growth mindset and and being able to do being able to do that makes me a better person a better friend a better family member but also a better manager as well a better boss so because then I can say hey they like my But my team, if they make a mistake, I'm like, you made a mistake. Let's keep it moving. All right. It's not a big deal. Do you know what I mean? If you keep making the same mistakes over and over again, that's why I have to look at you sideways a little bit. But but if you make a mistake once, I was like, who am I going to yell at you? We're a team.
1: I think it's so brilliant what you say about growth mindset. And on our first episode of Sorry Seems That Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, Professor Kerry Cooper said, Consistency was one of the reasons that we don't say sorry as grown ups because we want to appear consistent and we've made a decision and we're going to stick with it. Even if we think we're wrong, and a growth mindset completely blows up that that thinking.
0: Yeah, it, exactly. It really does because we think that we have to appear like maybe right around the age of like thirteen, fourteen, we have to be perfect at everything the first time around. Once you free yourself up from that, then it life is golden. I'm like I don't have to be perfect at all. But on the other hand, don't get it wrong. Like I know that that's the way I fight for the world to be. But as a black woman, I know that I the same kinds of things that I see kind of white women do and white men do if I did the same thing if that if I do I wouldn't have that same grace
1: yeah that's a horrendous unfortunate truth of the world we live in and I yeah yeah I wonder if 2020 is doing something to amend that slowly but surely although obviously too
0: slowly too slowly too slowly <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs>
1: Melanie very kindly agreed to share with us a sorry that meant something to you and this is actually an apology that you gave um and it kind of involves intersectionality which we were chatting about before do you mind sharing that with us please
0: yeah so you know I was uh, talking with um some of my team members at work and I used the term Chinese whispers because there was a miscommunication between several people and you know when your spidey sense goes off. So there's some spidey sense stuff that goes off. So my spidey sense went off, but we kept on going because it was a meeting. And I afterwards I looked up that that evening over a glass of wine. I looked it up, and I realized that that term has racial or like racist origins. Now, in hindsight, I should say that whenever you use a race or a nationality as a descriptor or an adjective to describe a negative situation, it's not a good thing, right? Like, come on, like, and when I, even when I say that out loud, I'm like, well, now how could you not know that that couldn't be, that, that was a, like, why would you even say that?
1: It's a common phrase. It's a common phrase.
0: It's a common phrase. It was a game that I played in, you know, like, and we call it like the telephone game as well. There was variations of it. And, but on the other hand, um, you know, also, I remember in the movie, Annie, that Punjab unwrapped his turban and saved Annie from the helicopter. Was that appropriate? So some of the things that we did when we were children, that we watched when we were children, were you know were a little bit ignorant and a little bit inappropriate, or a lot ignorant, a lot inappropriate. So, and you got to remember that also. I'm not just anyone. I'm Miss Diversity and Inclusion. Like that's that's my life. And so when I read the the the, the background in terms of some of the the, the, the horrible origins of the term or even the potential for it to be horrible then I had to sit down and write a note and say I am so sorry to not only the person to which I was speaking to directly but also to everyone who was in my presence who I uttered it to and I said, like you know what I just found this out I'm so sorry my spidey side and I, you know I said it exactly how I've just explained to you I said it out loud to describe the situation, my spidey sense went off, I went back, I looked it up, and it could be interpreted as, you know, oh, it's nice and innocent childhood game, or it also could be interpreted with negative connotations in terms of a misunderstanding or miscommunication of a language of difference. And so I apologize. No one will use that in my presence. I will not use that term again, and no one will ever use it in my presence. I'll correct people from using my presence as well. And, you know, that's it. Like, it was it was a beautiful thing because you're just like, okay. And I got an, I got a note back from people. and was like, hey, Mel, thanks so much. It's great to, that you're living your values, whatever, whatever. And I know that there are some people that would be like, oh, man, she's taking this PC stuff too far. <laughs> I know that. I totally get it. But I, you know, was there a question? I could have just read it and then left it and not set it again but I think that when you are a public figure and you're a public figure in this space there's an extra level of accountability and there are younger people around me and I needed to set that example in that tone and and quite frankly I I've learned the hard way that when I've made my mistakes and when I'm vulnerable um, about certain things not about everything but vulnerable at certain things that's when people get the most amount of kind of inspiration from me um because then they feel that they're able to do that too and say you know what if mel miss diversity and inclusion made a mistake about you know a, a black and asian person then hey and i can make a mistake and i can apologize wholeheartedly as well and, and it's okay i don't have to get it perfect
1: there's a couple of things i want to pull out of that first of all you're sort of the only person out of i think 12 so far that's actually chosen a sorry, that you gave which I thought was really interesting and represents an incredible level of self-awareness that I would love to one day be blessed with I wanted to chat to you about the idea of people correcting and you correcting others because I would say that's something in the last couple of years that's kind of started happening more in Britain and I wonder what the appropriate response is because I think we can embarrass people or we can be embarrassed ourselves when something, you say something you didn't mean it that way or you're like, oh goodness, no, I'm so sorry or actually their pronouns, they. And I think we're still a little awkward at it. How do you feel when you kind of get corrected or you correct others?
0: I When I correct others, I always do it in private. Like there are some times it never goes well when I lose my temper or I didn't think about the most strategic way of for the message to land. I was thinking about my emotions and I was upset, but I didn't necessarily think of, OK, so in order to make a change, what's the best way that this should be sent so that it's received? And, and correcting people in public, again, hearken back to, you know, my little story about me being raised in the church. You know, you always correct in private. You don't, you know, to do it in front of a lot of people then what happens is that the person doesn't necessarily, it can't just think about you and responding to you or having a level of self-reflection or examination. They also got to think about all these other eyes on them as well. And then when the ego comes in, it's just not hospitable for self-examination, self-awareness and a an apology as well. So I try not to correct people in public. When I get corrected, I th- th- there's a point that, you work, that I've worked, to since learning about the growth mindset that i'm like okay i get corrected and it's not really a big deal to me so the prob- the, the, the beautiful thing about it is that when you don't care as much about being corrected then people don't correct you as much <laughs> cuz they're not they're not going to get the reaction right so if they if they are going to correct you they're going to they're correcting you because it's real so someone so for example someone now after hearing what i just told them if they hadn't heard that story and they heard Miss Mel is, you know, a big diversity and inclusion person and she fights for this and she fights for that. And if they had heard me make a mistake, then they, you know, there are going to be some people who'd be like, oh, I can't believe that you're Miss Diversity and Inclusion and you made that mistake. After hearing that story that I've just given, that I've told you about, like, it's going to take a lot of wind out of their sails, right? Like, it's not about pointing the finger. They know they're not going to upset me that much. I'll just be like, yeah, I made a mistake. Okay. And I'm really sorry. It's not that big a deal.
1: Melanie, I think you're my new life guru, <laughs>
0: if I'm honest with you. But you know what I mean, though? Like, it's just like they, do, they will, like, because sometimes what happens, it's that tall poppy syndrome that we like to kind of knock down people who are on a platform. And with the, uh, horribly and thankfully with diversity and inclusion, the platform is about us all learning together and having grace with one another and not knowing the answers and not getting it perfect. And so, what better example can I set by that than that? Because I, I, I like I, my awards are not for, I've always said this the Black British Business Awards, they're not for Black people. They're for white people. They're for our others. They're for my majority of my country so that I can show them the glory of it. And so, I, you know, for me to kind of sit and, 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 and not be able to show that this is the learning journey that we're all on, that, you know, you can't be expected to know the difference between a hikab and a hijab, but you will learn, <laughs> you can ask, then if I can't do that, then how, what kind of example am I setting?
1: Melanie, you say be learning together. What a fantastic note to end this interview on. And thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat to us today. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Oh, uh, thank you, Miss Thule. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so sorry to a colleague. I don't work directly with her but she was part of the same induction when I joined. She's a black woman and during our group induction we were chatting about the recruitment process and the groups of people hired. She said it was a shame that there was a lack of diversity. Being from a northern working class background and having been successful in a highly competitive recruitment into a profession that's known for its middle upper class Oxbridge demographics, I instinctively said yes, everyone's from the south and sounds really posh. I'd totally missed that she was the only black person in a room of 25 white people. I'm sorry for my ignorance, and for viewing diversity with myself at the centre, and for not reaching out since to apologise in person. This memory came jolting back to me as I was reading a blog on white privilege when the BLM protests gained momentum and attention earlier this year, and I wish even then that I'd emailed her to apologise for my total lack of blinkered ignorance to her perspective. I'm sorry. This is Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word, created by myself, Hannah Tooley, edited and mixed by Big Sound Audio. Our music has been created by the extremely talented David Dudney. Check out his band, The Best Part, on Spotify.